All right, so welcome back to part two of the Cowden family murders. So where we left off, the Cowden family has been missing and there's really no trace of them. There's no evidence left at the scene. The kind of last clue that we have is the family's puppy Droopy was found scratching at the door to the general store. And it's now what, five, we're, we're basically five, six months later, we're basically into kind of the the beginning of spring of 1975. Yeah. So we're actually going to start about seven months later. So that's where we're going to pick up our story. So quite a bit of time has passed. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the discovery and then we're going to talk about some potentially linked cases and we'll get into how they could be connected together. So let's just dive right in. I don't like the, the verbiage, the discovery that makes me uncomfortable, but let's well, dive I'm, in. Yeah, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but we're going to make a discovery here, so... Oh, no. So seven months later, on April 12th, 1975, two gold prospectors were hiking through the woods near Carberry Creek when they made a discovery. Before we find out what find out what the discovery was, I love that in 1975 there were two gold prospectors. Presumably yeah, I love- either hobbyists or career prospectors. Is that a thing? Yeah, I wondered about that, too, because this is the only description of these two people I could find. But that's definitely a thought that I had. It's like, is this a hobby that they like do on the weekends or just in their spare time? Or is this like their full time? I'm a gold prospector and that's just what they do. I don't know, but it was fascinating to me. I just like I have a picture in my head of like somebody in overalls with a big hat and like a pan prospecting for gold which maybe they were who knows right. i couldn't okay. find pictures so, so they're prospecting for gold <laughs> and they end up prospecting for presumably the, the, well they end up finding not gold maybe they found gold that day but more importantly they found some bones oh no so first they found the bones and then they found the body of an adult male tied to a tree on a steep hillside and this was about seven miles away from where the Cowdens had been camping. Is the body so, bones or? Well, we'll, we'll kind of get into that. Okay. So the men immediately left the area. These prospectors immediately were like, this is above my pay grade. I'm going to go call the police. Yep. So they leave the area to call the police and the police immediately descend on this site. And actually, Kazar himself and his team arrived. So they were like, okay, this seems like it could be related to the Cowdens. So we need gotcha. to get out there. Okay, that's that's good. So, right. So they met up with local PD and they were like pretty certain. They were like 99% certain that this was Richard Cowden when they heard about this. 
So they also called in help from Salem, Oregon, including the help of a Dr. William Brady, who was the state's medical examiner at the time. So they were like, okay, let's do this right, right from the get go. Let's get all the right people involved so that we can get some answers. Uh, And it did turn out to be Richard's body. So Richard's body had first been discovered at about 3.30 p.m., but by the time police were able to get back out after having been called out, um, it was now getting pretty late and dark. So they actually had to pause their efforts to come back the next day because, okay, you found Richard, you found a man, but if you're already assuming that this is the Cowdens, there are three other family members that you still need to try to find. Right. So it was the next day that searchers discovered a cave. So it was a small cave nearby and inside they found the bodies of an adult female, a child and an infant. Oh no. Yes. And the cave's entrance had been sealed with like some rocks and like dirt and things like that to kind of disguise the entrance and to presumably hide the bodies that were within. And it was really kind of unclear to me in what direction, seven miles away from the family, this was found. Um, But something of note was that, and it wasn't clear on this either, if it was either inside the cave or nearby the cave's entrance, but the missing plastic infant carrier was found as well from the scene of the Cowden's disappearance. So, I mean, obviously they can't right now be like, I yes, clearly this is the Cowden's, but they have a lot of evidence to point to the fact that it is. Right. So they were actually identified through dental records and autopsies were performed. And the medical examiner was able to determine that both Belinda and her son, David had died from 22 caliber gunshot wounds while baby Melissa had died from severe head trauma, which is really, really sad. Yeah. Um, And so Richard's body wasn't found in the cave. Like I mentioned, he was found tied to a tree outside. And so this meant that he wasn't protected from the elements in the same way that the rest of his family had been. Did he die of exposure? Well, no cause of death could be determined for him um, because he was mainly skeletal remains at this point. And something that I didn't know. So I am not a gun enthusiast. I don't really know a whole lot about like weapons or munitions or anything like that. So something that was kind of helpful for me to learn was that apparently 22 caliber bullets oftentimes don't go deep enough to penetrate bones. Yeah. So it's entirely possible that Richard was shot, but if it didn't penetrate deep enough, to you know penetrate like his skull or bones or things like that we wouldn't know 22 22 caliber rounds are actually like they're surprisingly deadly despite the fact they're very small bullets they don't have like stopping power or stopping force like you know you 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 think about like your like typically police munitions are nine millimeter hollow points um and the hollow points because the the bullets will enter the body and kind of they're called hollow points because there's a divot in the front of the bullet. And what happens mm-hmm. is they enter the body and then they kind of spread and open up and like. Right. They kind of like explode within. Right. And they're meant to be like, you know, literally stopping force. You want, you're not necessarily trying to like, well, the justification that like law enforcement and gun enthusiasts use is you're not really trying to kill a person or like, you know, penetrate them with a bullet. You're just trying to stop them from getting closer to you, which is obviously bullshit. 
because they just cause a massive amount of damage. Um, right. It's like shrapnel within your body. Right. So they, they, they call it stopping power, but it's not stopping power. It's killing power. Um, but 22 caliber bullets actually can be they're They're less lethal because they're less powerful. They're much, much smaller rounds. Um, they're used a lot for like target shooting and competition shooting. Um, oh, OK. Because they're. They're really cheap. They're really small. You can shoot a lot of them very, very easily. And and they can be really accurate because they're so lightweight. Um, but they can be really deadly in terms of like if you shoot somebody or if somebody is shot in the head with a 22 caliber round, it can actually be more deadly than other rounds because what happens is is entering the skull, it can enter the skull. But when it does, it loses so much energy that the bullet can actually bounce around inside the skull and do a lot more damage than like another music munition that might just go all the way through someone's head. Like headshots are surprisingly okay. not that lethal for people unless the bullet stays in the head, which 22 caliber rounds can do as your morbid. Well, I'm glad that you're here, Matt, because I yeah. know nothing about this. So yeah. if anybody so, has anything else to add, you can certainly message us or, you know, yeah. do comments, but this is not my area of expertise. So like, yeah. this is all news to me. So thank yeah. you for your insight. I'm not an expert by any means either. I just, know a lot of weird more just know more than i do so yeah but yeah so so he he, yeah so he could have been shot he could have been left out but it's kind of hard to say because he's he's only bones at this point right and this is all things that like a law enforcement member would know like these are things that they would know and you know certainly a medical examiner would have more knowledge of than a lay person like myself so i'm sure that these are things that they're thinking about as well um and in ann rule's book she says that the cave was too small to have put in both, you know, mom and kids and Richard's body. So she seems to kind of posit that he was maybe left outside because he was too big. Because like when you hear a small cave, I mean, what does that really mean? Like it could mean a lot of different things, but it seems like it really was just big enough for Belinda and her children. Ground, more or less. Not really like right. a cave per se, like you would think about a cave. It's more just like maybe a hole in the side of a hill or something. Right. So that kind of helped me to understand the scene of the crime a little bit better. And because Richard's body was left, you know, uncovered and outside, apparently some law enforcement officials thought maybe Richard like killed his family and then killed himself. So maybe he was a family annihilator, which is a kind of new term. It wasn't really like a term they used back in the seventies, but is a term that people have used now to describe like a, like a parent who, you know, kills their family right. and then kills themselves. So they're thinking it might that, be like a murder suicide kind of thing where he right, killed them and right. walked away. But but like that's so weird. Like why would you tie yourself to a tree and then like shoot yourself? Like right. why would you find it necessary to tie yourself to the tree? Like to me that just doesn't right. really make sense. But I'm sure they're kind of like it's the you old, know Yeah. He committed suicide by stabbing himself thirty seven times and then shoving himself into a suitcase to die. Right. Like they're like, we don't really know. We're kind of grasping at straws here so we'll go with that yeah um and so obviously if that's what they're thinking right like this was a murder suicide well then the weapon would still be around right so they searched the nearby area right so they searched the nearby area for a gun but they were never able to recover a gun or any weapons or any bullet casings from the area oh so do they think that they died in the cave or that they died elsewhere and relocated they don't know they don't know. Been, and we'll kind of get to that. Presumably, right. 
Right. So we'll kind of get to that. We'll touch on that a little bit here, too. Um, but Mark Kazar, again, would be later quoted as saying, quote, the whole nature of the thing smacks of a weirdo, end quote, which, uh, yikes. It's like a really weird way <laughs> to talk, me? my dude. But I guess it was the 70s. So That's I'm not making thing. excuses, but. <laughs> it just smacks of a weirdo, you see? Like, it's very. Yeah, I read that and I like audibly said yikes when I heard that. But yeah, I digress. That's that's a weird quote. <laughs> and he did say the police knew more from the crime scene than they released to the public. But they also said that a weapon was never found and there were no bullet casings. So I don't necessarily think that they lied about that. But I'm curious to know what they kind of held closer to their chest. So I don't know what kind of other physical evidence that they found that they didn't release. Mm, makes sense. Um, and if you're curious, because I'm always curious when I hear about rewards, um, the two prospectors were given the $2,000 reward. Oh, that's like, so, I looked it up. That's like ten and a half thousand dollars in today's money. Like yeah. 10, so, bucks, I mean, so. It, it got paid out in this case, I guess, if you were curious about that. Um, good, and good for them, I guess. Right. Which I don't know. Like, I... I wouldn't want to get $10,000 from finding some bodies. I'd feel bad about it. But I mean, I'm not like faulting them. I'm not saying that they're bad people. But like when I think about it, like every time I go walking in the woods, I'm always a little bit concerned I'll find something. And I'm like, I don't necessarily want any part of that. <laughs> like, I mean, you know what I mean? I wouldn't want to be like, yes, give me yeah. that $10,000, please. Right. Anyway, I digress. Like totally not a good point in their major point in this case. But anyway, now you know. I mean if they're professional gold prospectors, like maybe they're hard up for the money. Maybe they need it. Maybe, maybe this was good for them. I don't maybe. know how lucrative professional know. gold prospecting is, but I don't, if it was lucrative, I think there'd be more prospectors we hear about, but you don't really hear about that many gold prospectors. So. Yeah. I don't know. So don't anyway, know. anyway, like that's part of the story for you there. Um, and what's interesting is, as it turns out, that sighting of the dog matching Droopy's description, where, you know, a couple had said, oh, we saw a yeah. dog about six miles out, was actually very, very, very close to where the bodies were found. Oh, wow. So if you remember, that was six miles away from where the Cowdens had been camping. Their bodies are found seven miles away. So, like, in the same direction, which is really interesting and kind of weird. Right. Well, and it's, you know, it kind of, it really does speak to, even with all this all these thousands of man hours they put into this search and how, how much effort was put into trying to find this family over, you know, very, very, I guess a, a long period of time, presumably they searched around this area, but like searching through this kind of dense vegetation and this, this kind of, this kind of really heavily forested area is a really difficult thing. It's really easy to miss things. And, well, you know, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk okay. about that. Okay. So, like, what happened, right? Because the police are asking themselves, what happened here? Right. So, police come up with a loose timeline for what could have happened at the campsite that day. It's a very typical operating procedure here. So, Richard and David are seen at the Copper General at approximately 9 a.m. on Sunday. Sometime after their trip to the store that morning, the family went swimming in nearby, in nearby Carberry Creek. A short time later, probably before noon, the family was abducted at gunpoint, presumably by somebody that they did not know. So not by a family member, friend, townie, things like that. 
And later on, a family from um, Los Angeles would claim that they had arrived at the campgrounds. So similar to where the Cowdens were, because it was like a like official campground area um, around 5 p.m. on Sunday, September 1st. And while they were walking around the park that evening, they spotted two men and a woman parked nearby in a pickup truck. And the family said, quote, they acted like they were waiting for us to leave. And frankly, they made us nervous. So we moved on, end quote. Mm. And this and this was after the last sighting of the Cowden family. And it wasn't really a good fit. So they didn't think, oh, that was the Cowden family somehow. But police did think, okay, did these people on this pickup truck, did they see something? Like, we need to talk to them and find out what these people know. Or did they do something? Or did they do something? Right. So they're like, either they saw something or they were involved, potentially. So we need to talk to these people in the pickup truck. Like, it's suspicious to me that the detail that has survived through the ages to end up in your show notes to read to me on our podcast the fact that these people in this pickup truck made this other family uncomfortable. Right. That like that's stood the test of time. Right. Like, why did they make them uncomfortable? I don't don't like these people. (laughs) Right. So they're, they're suspicious, obviously. Right. And here is, you know, you know, something interesting to think about. Um, is that based on the location of Belinda and her children, so inside this concealed cave, Lieutenant Kazar suspected that the perp was a local, so someone who knew the area well and was familiar with the cave. Not necessarily somebody who lives in Copper, but somebody who's from that area of the Pacific Northwest. You know, this isn't somebody who was from, you know, New Mexico driving through and they just happened upon it. Like, this is someone who has been here before. Right, like, this is a cave that was hard for like park troopers who are familiar with the area, familiar with the park, searching mm-hmm. for small out of the way places, familiar with all the mine shafts and holes in the area, all that stuff. This was a place that they didn't know about. So it was somebody who had to be intimately familiar with the area in order to know the perfect place to dump this poor family. Well, and then speaking of So after the family had been discovered, a resident of Grants Pass who was part of the search as a volunteer. This man came forward to police and he said, hey, I personally searched that cave (gasps) during the initial search of 1974 and I did not see any bodies. And so the police at first were like, "Okay, you're probably mistaken. I'm sure there are kind of several areas like this. You know, they they did not really. Like they weren't saying he was lying, but they thought that he was mistaken. Right. So they said, okay, take us to this cave. And so he walked them directly to the cave where the bodies were found and was right. like, this is the cave that I searched. And they so were like, oh, snap. In the immediate days after they were missing, their bodies were not in or around this cave. Right. So that makes us think if we think about it, there wasn't a weapon found in the area and there were no bullet casings. So that leads me to believe, you know, later as an armchair detective that they were maybe killed in a different area. 
not necessarily they were kept alive for a long period of time after they were taken, but that they were killed somewhere else. And then after this big search had happened, the bodies were moved to that cave, probably because if we're saying that the perp is local, perp knows what areas have been searched and says, okay, well now they're done searching in that area. It's safe for me to bring these bodies back. Now, why he would tie Richard to a tree, I don't know. Right. You don't tie a dead, you don't tie a dead body to a tree, you know? Like, unless you're just being weird, I don't know. Like you're, you're a killer, weird, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're killing someone, there's no, there's no really accounting for how weird you are already. But like, you don't just you don't tie a dead body to a tree. So like, to me, it seems almost like he, you know, maybe this poor family was alive the whole time, or maybe you know, poor Richard, maybe his family was killed before he was and then he was tied to the tree near them you know it's it, i don't know that just that's a terrifying fact because it means they were alive at least for some time after they went missing and what Possibly. happened to them in that time right and we based on the decomposition and you know how long it had been since the bodies were found i mean there was no way i think especially in 1974 for them to know right um, months later i mean it's just the, the margin right. of error is is too wide at this point. But it's very bizarre. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, now we know that a crime has been committed. I mean, I think that, well, maybe initially some law enforcement thought that it was like a murder-suicide. I pretty quickly turned out that there was just no way that this was the case. Right. Um, unless somebody had come across the scene and hadn't been part of what happened and was like, oh, I will take these bullet casings and this gun and leave this body to a tree like that just doesn't seem very likely so now police need to be like okay we need to find ourselves a suspect so let's talk about a potential suspect well we have one we do so we're going to time travel so we're going to go back in time to 1964 so that is 10 years before the cowdens disappeared so on november 2nd 1964 a 16-year-old girl named Orla Faye Phipps. Um, some reports said 15, but most of the reports I saw said 16. So we're going to go with 16. Okay. Um, was very tragically raped and murdered. Oh, God. Um, so to give you a little bit of background on this person, you know, Orlo is described as a very quiet, friendly girl. Like she sang in the choir at school um, and she loved horseback riding. Like that was her thing. She loved horses and she loved horseback riding, which, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and kind of remote areas, like that's a beautiful and perfect area for that. Yeah. That's really sad. It was. And it's really sad too, when I was reading about the case, because she went horseback riding all the time and very frequently her 15 year old brother. So her brother who was a little bit younger than her would go along with her just in case the horse kicked her. Um, but on this day she went out alone. So on this day, her brother wasn't with her. So on November 2nd, when she didn't come home for dinner, her family went out searching and they found her horse, but no sign of Orla, which was super weird because if she had gotten hurt in like a horseback riding accident, you wouldn't expect the horse to be super far away from her. Or if she was, you know, had fallen and hurt herself, you would expect to find her somewhere in the area. She would have ridden the horse. Right. So they're very concerned. The horse's name and wasn't Droopy, was it? 
No, I don't know what the horse's name was. So sorry that my storytelling is not up to snuff there, but I'm not sure she had a horse of some sort who had a name, I assume. Horsey. Um, sure, horsey. Uh, and a, a man was helping on the search and his name was Roy Stuckey, which is a very bizarre name, but that's his name. Roy? Um, the Stuckey was more... <laughs> the weird part to me um anyway sorry if your name is roy or your name is stucky your name is valid didn't mean to be a jerk i'm sorry i'm sure you're a wonderful Um, person so roy unfortunately made the discovery so Mm. orla was just off the path on a forest trail and by the looks of it she had really put up a tremendous fight Um, but she had been it's it's kind of gruesome but she had been hit over the head her throat had been cut and she had been stabbed multiple times. Oh my God. Which is like very violent. I mean, That's this is like violent. a very violent attack. Yeah. Um, and like, ugh, I almost That's hate really to bring sad. this up, but in Anne Rule's novel, according to Anne Rule, the autopsy confirmed that Orla had been raped after her death. Oh God. Which nothing else that I read said that. And I don't know if it's because everything that I was reading about Orla was like from the time and maybe they were like, hey, that's a detail that the public doesn't really need to know. So Could they be. didn't say anything. I don't know. So like Anne I guess I'm taking you at your word. But I mean, once again, this is like a very like bizarre, methodical, like intent to harm and like taking pleasure in harming someone kind of an act. Right. This which is, is like very, very severe right this is incredibly gruesome and violent and and horrible so that leads us to a guy named Dwayne Dwayne or Wayne Dwayne Dwayne according to Ann Rule's book um was a neighbor and Orla and he didn't really know each other they weren't like best friends they didn't date Mm. Nothing like that, but they knew of each other. And according to Anne Rule's novel in specific, Dwayne and her younger brother and Orla's younger brother had been friends for a period of time. But for some reason, Dwayne ended the relationship. Not really a lot of details. So I don't know if they like had a fight or if they just had different interests or what. So anyway. Dwayne and Orla are like kind of like maybe second party acquaintances. They've maybe hung out together. They've seen times. each other before. Yeah. Yeah. They know each other like, probably pretty well. Like from school, like that kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and it's like kind of horrible because in Anne Rule's book, she spends a lot of time talking about Dwayne and her novel, um, and kind of about his family history. And we'll get into that a little bit just because it's interesting to say the least. Um, but I was kind of like appalled reading Anne Rule's book, and she's talking about how a sister of Dwayne's made this comment at some point being like, well, Orla wore shorts and that was provocative. And I'm like, I know it's the seven. No, Dwayne's sister. Oh, which I'm like, I know it's the seventies, but like, what? Okay. It's very very like victim blamey in literally the worst way. Right. And she said, quote, Dwayne always went to his room when she showed up End quote. She being Orla, which I'm like, okay, this is very bizarre. Anyway, like, so Orla could wear shorts. So, so they're really setting up Dwayne. Yeah, this is very silly, but like, 
she's really setting up Dwayne as a suspect or a perp here. Yeah, I mean, we're going to get to that, but right. yeah. Um, And like Dwayne at the time was a mostly average kid. He didn't really stand out in any sort of way. He wasn't the star pupil of the school. Um, he was the president of his eighth grade class and captain of the football team. But other than that, he wasn't a very noteworthy person. And this is all from Anne Roll's book. So like everything we're hearing about his backstory, none of it I could kind of find corroboration of in like other news articles or anything. So once again, take Anne Roll's word as you would take it with a grain of salt, maybe. She's a storyteller. So how much of this is, you know, kind of bedazzled i'm not sure right um and apparently when Dwayne was a lot younger so when he was a pretty little kid he had been accidentally struck on the head with a baseball bat yeah which i can't imagine how that happened but i know that little kids get in the way sometimes like on accident it's not their fault i mean so i don't know if like you know his older siblings were playing baseball and he was like oh and like ran out there and got clonked in the head i'm not really sure but either way i mean in the head for some reason at some point when he was a kid right and this was like a very traumatic brain injury and he actually had to wear a helmet for like months afterward because his head had been so severely injured um And after this, he would complain often of like very frequent headaches. Um, And so a lot of people have since hypothesized that part of the reason why he wasn't a very good student in school was because he suffered a traumatic brain injury. Right. And that made it hard for him. Sometimes that's yeah. Right. Because it's like we know this happens. I mean, we know now very well the effects of a traumatic brain injury and especially on the brain of a child. Yup. Which is not too excuse him for things that he may or may not have done later. But, you know, this is some of his backstory. Um, And apparently he was very close to like an older cousin of his, but he didn't have friends who were his own age, which is maybe part of the reason why he had been kind of friends with Orla's brother. And then they just weren't friends anymore after that for some reason. Okay. So to take a segue, because I had to read this. So now the rest of you get to hear it with me. Like <laughs> I just can't read this and not share it. Um, we're going to go on a history through Dwayne's family life, which is bizarre. And I, like I said, I could not find other sources than Anne Rule's novel on this. So take it with a grain of salt. But I read it. So now you have to hear it. Um, so his father... <laughs> so like to get started, his father, his being Dwayne, um, was convinced that some man was out to get him. I'm sorry, and what was he his would, name? We haven't gotten to his name yet. And okay. honestly, in Anne Rule's book, she gave them fake names. So I don't know what Dwayne's parents like real names were. Like she okay. was like stone with an asterisk. And I'm like, okay, so that's not his name. Mm. Okay. So, So, and I didn't, I mean, listen, like I care way more about victims in a case than I do about killers. So I wasn't going to spend an insurmountable amount of time trying to find out what their names really were. So anyway, his father of some name (laughs) um, was convinced that some other man was out to get them. And so he would make his family live under like assumed names. He would like, maybe this is why we don't know their names. Yeah, also maybe this, but he would like move them to a new town and be like, your name is 
some other name now. And like, here's our new last name. And we just like make shit up, which apparently was easier to do in the 70s. My God. Um, and he would like make them pull their own water. So like they couldn't use tap water because he was convinced that somebody would poison the water line. So they had to like pull uh, water from a well. Um, okay. Right. And so here's like where we really start getting into it. So once again, I read this. Now you have to hear it. Um, in 1956, Dwayne's father was shot by someone. It depends. There are different cases on who it was, but he someone was right. shot him. Well, I don't. We'll get to that. OK, So somebody shot him and he lost a testicle. <laughs> part of his penis. <laughs> And partial use of his right leg. So according to some some reports, it was a mysterious foster child living in their home. Excuse me. And yeah. And in other reports, it was his brother, like Dwayne's uncle who shot his brother. This is okay. You've. okay. let me I need to digest this for a moment. Right. And in uh, Annual's novel, she literally just has one, like one sentence and she just says it deadpan and then moves on and like so, doesn't go back to it. And I'm like, Anne, you can't leave me hanging. What the hell? So father of Dwayne is, yes. I I presume to be maybe like paranoid schizophrenic and, or something, had some sort of mental illness. Or over. he does a bunch of scams all the time and he's out here conning a bunch of people and that a lot of people are mad too. at him. And so he has a rightful reason to be concerned. Either or. Uh, For some reason, he's paranoid that somebody is after his family, either somebody in the general sense or specifically a one specific person. And then they move to a house. And at some point in the 60s, no, in the 50s. In the 50s. In the 50s, when Dwayne is a young boy, his father is shot by either his mysterious unnamed foster child who's living in their house or his uncle no no his own brother uh, Dwayne Dwayne's dad's brother yes right shoots him in the doink and he loses part of his penis partial use of his right leg and a whole testicle yep and and I literally have no other information on it and that's, that's where and wrote. that's and I'm assuming that was end of paragraph moving on more about Dwayne. No, now about his mother, actually. Now we're going to talk about his mother. OK, so I'm like, I know, on. strap yourself in, right? Is it going to get worse? <laughs> I don't know. It depends on what skills you're using, I guess. Oh, um, God. All right. I'm ready. So his his mother, in the meantime, at some point has been accused of burning down her friend's house. Um, and then mysteriously, two years later, their house burns to the ground. And mysteriously. <laughs> right. And so then, like, after this, another fire happens and apparently $32,000 worth of their logging equipment was lost. And it wasn't clear to me because like Anne didn't make it very specific if it was $32,000 worth of equipment at that time, like in the 50s and 60s, or if it was like $32,000 now in our time. I don't know. But I mean, a lot of logging equipment. So, I mean, I mean like, from what I can read from this, his mother likes to set things on fire. 
Right. Well, I mean, $32,000 in today's money is a kind of okay, well-used forklift. Like, <laughs> I'm assuming it was in... Okay, right. That's fair. <laughs> right. Like, I'm assuming it was in, in you know, 1960s dollars or 50s dollars, because otherwise it wouldn't really be worth that much. Like, somebody drops a log on, like, a lifting machine or, like, a crane or something, and that's $32,000 just written off right there. Like, industrial equipment costs a lot of money. So, I assume it's 32 k in those days dollars but anyway point is she sets fire to her friend's house then their house mysteriously burns down and then a logging company's nearby no their logging equipment they're like the family's logging equipment oh their own logging equipment mysteriously goes up in fire so she's burned their things down twice and a friend's things down once allegedly right allegedly and so it's hard to tell like, okay, let's say it's true. And she has been setting these things on fire. Like, were you just mad at your friend? Like, were you trying to help your friend with some sort of insurance scheme? Are these insurance schemes for yourself? Are you mad at, like, you know what I, I mean? Like, I don't the logs. Quite, like, I don't, well, I just don't understand. Like, I don't know, man. It's just very unsure. But then also, like, you know, Anne's, Anne Rule's book was written fairly recently so it's not like she wrote her book in you know 1978 or something like that so it's kind of hard to know like how much of this do we have hard facts on or how much of this is speculation where later on they're like well i'm pretty sure she set fire to her friend's house and her own right like Like we don't know the circumstances how much of it is apocryphal like (laughs) right but like anyway this is just very bizarre this is just all very bizarre so, so anne's book is basically just setting up a fact uh, setting up the fact this family is troubled for a variety of reasons. He grew up in probably a very rough household with the TBI. Didn't have many friends, was a loner. Now he's yeah. presumably our murder suspect. I would assume. I mean, like, well, wait, there's more. Oh, no. So, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, this is a really big diversion. But like I said, I read it and I just kept going, what? Like, as I read it. So... Now you get to know it as well. So um, all the while in the background is all of this is happening. You know, the family is making these claims that like their cows are getting poisoned and like their dogs are getting poisoned and that like some of their cows were shot. So, I mean, this is like in like regardless of his if it's parents orchestrating this or if it is some other entity, this is like certainly very stressful on a small child. Yeah, well, like either way, this is some really tough shit to be going through as a kid. Right. And now, like when you started it and you said his dad was paranoid. I was like, okay, well, it's probably mentally ill, man. Like, it's probably not true. What are the odds that that's true? But then he got shot and all their houses and businesses and whatever got burned down. And now I'm not so sure. Right. And so it's hard to know, like, was the family orchestrating a lot of their own tragedies or were there other people involved? I don't know. I don't have enough information to say, but I mean, take that as you will. So in 1961, remember, his father was shot in 1956. So a couple of years later, in 1961, Dwayne's father was committed to a state hospital and was labeled as criminally insane Because then he shot his brother. I don't know if it was the same brother who shot him or a different brother, but he tried to kill one of his brothers. Did he shoot him in the penis? Undetermined. Yeah. No information about that. So this was three years before Orla's death 
Orla's murder, I should say. Yes, yeah. So we're building up to to Orla's murder here. Okay. So then after this, two years later, so that would be 1963, Dwayne's father escaped from the hospital and he <laughs> scooped up his family and they fled to Tennessee where Excuse he was arrested me. and put in jail. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I don't know if they like knew to look out for him. You know what I mean? Or if he did something and they picked him up and they were like, oh, by the way, also you were institutionalized and you were supposed to stay locked up. I just like um, picture him running away from the mental hospital. Say you suckers. I'm going to Tennessee. Bye. Right. <laughs> right. Like, it's just very like a lot of this doesn't seem like it could be real. But like, I don't I just don't know. All I lot. have is and words. It's just a lot happening. It's a lot happening. Once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. So then for some strange reason, they freed him. They were just like, OK, I guess. And they willingly moved back to Oregon. They were in the Pacific Northwest before and they moved back to the Pacific <sighs> Northwest. OK. So and then I just like. Love this quote. I have to redo this quote from Anne Rule's novel. So, quote, somewhat ironically, a social worker assessing the family that November wrote with vast understatement, the family reports that the past year in Oregon has been the most secure, happiest year of their lives. Since being shot and having a tree fall on him, Mr. Little has been handicapped with a lame leg and has experienced considerable recurrent pain but rarely complains and has managed to hold a steady job, end quote. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay, so... Yeah, so Dwayne Little is his full name, if I didn't... Gotcha. gotcha. So Mr. Little would be his father. So the social worker has just no idea what they're getting themselves into. All right, so the social worker's <laughs> like, yeah, they're doing okay. Uh, also, apparently he had a tree fall on him. Like, Anne Rule never mentioned <laughs> that before. But at maybe, some point, a tree fell on this guy. Maybe that happened in the fire. Who knows? Maybe that happened in the fire. I don't know. So anyway, like now that we've kind of set up the background of Dwayne's family, which I mean, to say the least, is dysfunctional. Um, Dwayne himself was the favorite of the family. And he and his mother were apparently very, very close. Um, so I, what I'm getting at here is that Dwayne is going to get arrested for Orla's rape and murder. I, yep. Assume that. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of find out some more information about when he was jailed for this because he's like a teenager when he's jailed for this. He's not an adult. Um, And like once again, like I read it. So you have to hear it, too. Um, <laughs> apparently, when his mother came to visit him, which she did whenever she could. Um, according to Ann Rule's book, quote, she visited him whenever she was allowed to, and corrections workers noted that not only did he kiss her hello and goodbye, they exchanged kisses frequently during all their visits. Their physical connection didn't seem normal. His mom asked her son, who was now 16, to sit on her lap, and she held his hand, ruffled his hair, and even caressed his leg. Observers saw that this was sexually arousing for him, which embarrassed him. Especially no. when other boys in the unit teased him no. about it, end quote. And that, quote, he shared sexual jokes with his mother, end quote. No, no. Let it end. All right. I need, so, a, like, I need a drink. Oh, God. <laughs> it's it's like, once again, is this stuff that people are making up after the fact because they're like, oh, he's now a convicted killer. And like, well, here's what happened. Or is it real? I don't know. But like, this is right. just very bizarre. And I mean, I, ugh. Yeah. Ugh, ugh, um ugh. and so 
detective came to speak to Dwayne after Orla had been murdered and they found her body um, and show him photos of Orla's body and a knife that was very similar to one that Dwayne owned and could have possibly caused, you know, the injuries to Orla. Um, And Dwayne was just completely unfazed. And apparently he like shook hands with the detective and like saw him off while he was being held in prison. He was just like, okay, yeah, like I don't, whatever their pictures, goodbye. Um, And he was like very calm and he was polite and he like smiled and laughed with people in prison. Like he didn't take it seriously at all that he was being, you know, accused and charged with murdering, you know, and raping someone. Like it was just but that, completely unfazing to him. I mean, but after knowing his home life now, like, is this like a making a murderer kind of deal where like, you know, they just think that he's the weird kid in town and like Right. It's hard to know. And it's right. and I mean, other than this knife that was, you know, they're like, okay, we think that this knife could have caused the injuries and we know that this is a knife that you own. Like it's just very difficult to know. And it was kind of weird too though, because um, you know, according to people at the time, he also didn't seem to care or be really perturbed by the fact that his family was like frantically selling off all of their belongings to try and raise money for his defense. Mm. Like he didn't like it wasn't ever like nothing, like no part of it was serious to him. Um, and apparently during all of this, like while he's incarcerated as a 16 year old, um, Dwayne had a girlfriend and apparently she would like beg to be allowed to go see him. And she like wrote to him constantly. She's like this 14 year old girl. And apparently her family fell for it too, because her family gave $1,500 toward his defense. So it's just like, okay, so is he innocent or is he very good at conning people? Like it's, I have no idea. Um, It's very weird. And apparently, moreover, part of his, like as part of his pretrial evaluation, he was given quote unquote truth serum, which is sodium pentanol. Um, And his lawyers agreed to it if only a psychiatrist and a physician were present. So apparently this happened, but we don't know what the outcome was or what they decided or what he said or anything like that. That's very odd. So take that for what you will. So anyway, he goes to trial. And when he was 17 years old, Dwayne was sentenced to life for the rape and murder of of Orla. Okay. And it's important to know that at this time... Persons found guilty of first-degree murder were eligible for parole after 10 years' time, according to a news article I read that was talking about his sentencing. And it's important to note that he was charged as an adult, not as a minor. So he was convicted in 1974. 1964, I'm sorry, 1964. There you go. Okay. Well, I think it was was 1965, I think, because it was about a year that they went through the trial. Gotcha. Um, so, so Orla died in 1964, but it wasn't so, until a year later that things kind of came to a conclusion in that case. Gotcha. So nine years later. Right. Have, so we're getting there. Family. Right. We're getting there. So Dwayne Lee Little would go to jail for this rape and murder, but he was released from the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem on May 24th, 1974, which is just three months before the Cowden's family, the Cowden family disappeared. There it is. 
Um, and it's important to know, like I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, in his pre-trial kind of phase, while he was in jail, he was a model citizen. He like took on a bunch of jobs and responsibilities. He continued his schooling and they even allowed him to leave the prison from time to time because he was so good and his behavior was so exemplary. Gotcha. So um, model, and staff- model, model, model behavior, presumably uh, like well on the, on the path to, you know non-recidivism like he is according to them yeah like a staff member said quote i am certain of his remorse for the offense that he committed and the girl he killed i would welcome him as a next door neighbor end quote that that is that's strong language that is very bold phrasing yeah Yeah. i don't know that i would ever say that if i were someone who worked in the penitentiary system but someone did um and so when he was released on parole you know you have terms for parole so he was not allowed to carry a deadly weapon um he wasn't allowed to enter lane county and that's where orla had been murdered or next door to lane county was benton county and he was not allowed in there either okay um it's important to note that when the cowden family disappeared Dwayne's parents were living in the area of the disappearance and he spent a lot of time with friends in and around applegate like swimming and outdoorsy things so he was familiar with the area right so at this time when he is released he has another girlfriend i presume a different girlfriend than the first one when he was 14 although it was not clear um she told law enforcement that she had seen little with a 22 caliber gun um during christmas during the christmas of 74 And so on January 12th of 1975, his parole was revoked because of this information. She had known much earlier that he had a gun. Um, In fact, she had been living with him and his parents. And he was questioned about the Cowden's disappearance because he's a parolee in the area at the time that a family disappeared. A parolee Um, convicted of a violent murder. Of murder, right. Yeah. Um. And she didn't say anything at the time. She came forward later, though, because she found out that he had been cheating on her. <laughs> oh, God. That's so she I was, was mad. Yeah, right. So they had a fight. And or I should say he he was a shit heap and cheated on her. <laughs> aside from the other reasons, he's a shit heap. And uh, right, aside from the fact that he like raped and murdered someone. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so anyway, so he goes back to jail on May 23rd, 1975. So he had been out of jail for just shy of a year. He had not been out for very long. So and like what were they able? Okay. I'll let you tell the story. But now okay. they have a gun, right? Like, well, they have a gun, but they don't have any bullets or casings. Right. Um, so he ends up going back to jail. And once again, he's right back at it. He's smooching with the staff. You know, he got he got his old job back as a clerk. They were like, oh, yeah, you can have this job again. And like was once again acting like, you know, he was just such a model citizen. And a lot of people were very easily fooled by him and were like, oh, no, like he's remorseful for what he did he just made a silly mistake you know all this kind of stuff but some were not convinced including many psychiatrists who treated him while Mm -hmm. he was in prison they thought that it was an act but they didn't necessarily think that he would kill again you know they didn't necessarily think oh he's gonna go out and immediately murder again um 
So once again, he gets released on April 26 of 1977. And at this point, he's now married. It was unclear to me if like he got married while he was in prison or if it's like he had been, you know, corresponding with somebody and they got married right after he was released. I don't know. But he like at some point in 1977 after his release is married um, and he's, you know, eager to start over again. So all this time they don't still have anything to really link him to the Cowdens other than he was in the area. He had a, a gun that, you know, could have been used to shoot them, but they don't have casings. So they can't like officially connect him to those, the disappearance and the murder of the family. Right. So he tries to get released to the state of California, but the state of California doesn't want responsibility for him, which <laughs> okay. okay, fair. Yeah. Like I get it. And so he decides that he's going to settle into Oregon again, but this time he's going to settle near his new wife's family. So they live in Hillsborough, Oregon. And they had lined up a job for him at a potato chip factory, like a company. Um, okay. So he has a job opportunity. Okay, great. Um, and this time he has more conditions attached to his parole. So he can't associate with known felons. Once again, he still has to stay out of lane um, in Benton County and also Jackson County. And he has to remain part of this like mental health release program. And he still needs to see a parole officer. And he's in fact going to stay seeing the same parole officer that he's had this whole time. And apparently this parole officer like really believed in him, like really thought that he could be a good member of society. And so Mm -hmm. even though he's like moving pretty far away, he's going to be meeting with this parole officer who's, you know, a certain distance away because this guy is like, I believe in you, buddy. And things go quiet for three years. And then. But wait, there's more. I don't know. So on June 2nd, 1980. So we're into the 80s now. Little picks up a woman named Margie Hunter. And this is not her real name. Her real name has not been released. She's always referred to as Margie, um, but that's not her her true name. And I totally understand that she wants her privacy protected. Yep. So, this is you know, but we'll call her Margie. Yeah, her, her alias. And she is a pregnant 23-year-old woman. And so at this point in time, she's pretty sure that she's pregnant, but like she thinks that she's maybe only like a month or two along or something like that. So she's like not 100% certain yet. Okay, so um, and I'm, she's real quick. I'm really happy that you said she wants her privacy protected because it assumes that phrasing assumes she survives this encounter. She does. I'll spoil it that she lives. I'm very nervous for her, but okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, something bad is going to happen. Oh, no. He's going to hurt someone again, but she lives. Okay. Um, so her car breaks down near Portland, Oregon. And at this point in time, to give you a little bit of background on her situation, um, she was temporarily unemployed. And so she was going to pick up a check from where she had been employed, but had since been laid off. So she was kind of like picking up her last check kind of a thing. Okay. Um, And this is a place called Metalcraft. And so she hopped in her own car to head over there, but her car is kind of a piece of crap and she's been having troubles with it lately. Yeah, it breaks down. Right. So she makes it to old highway 99 and then her car breaks down and she's able to pull off to the side of the road. But I mean, it's not going anywhere. So a driver of a Honda Civic. um, Oh, I'm sorry. We have to cut this. I skipped. I skipped a line. So cut this. Um, So she pulls over. (laughs) 
So she pulls over to the side of the road and she starts to head toward a phone booth and it starts hailing, which is like, okay, great. If it's yeah. So it's like, if it's not one thing, it's another, you know, this is not a great situation. God. So she's pulled over. Her car's broken down. And now she's walking down the side of the road on foot. She thinks she's pregnant. And suddenly it starts hailing on her. Yes. And as she's walking, another hitchhiker is coming up. Right. Another hitchhiker comes up behind her and offers her his jacket. And so she uses his jacket and they both kind of make their way up toward shelter, which like when I read this, I was like, oh, oh, my God. Like, this is Dwayne. Right. Like, we know right. where this is going. Like, this is Dwayne. But it's not. <laughs> so they, you know, start making their way towards the shelter. And then another driver pulls over. And this is the driver of a Honda Civic. And the driver's waving for them to get in. And, and this so, is Dwayne. And this is Dwayne. Yes. So both of them get into the car. And at first, Margie doesn't feel very ill at ease because there's no real warning signs. Like, here's this other random guy who got into the car, too. Um, There's a triangle of strangers here, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, well, kind of, kind of. Because when Margie gets into the car, she realizes that she recognizes the driver as someone who also works at Metalcraft. Oh, and this is Dwayne works at Metalcraft. Yeah, so works the same day shift as her. And she doesn't like know him personally. Like she doesn't even remember his name, but like she's seen him. So she's like, okay, this is one of my former coworkers. This isn't a total stranger. Um, so she asks to be dropped off at the next phone booth while the other hitchhiker was on his way to Kane City. So her stop is coming up first. So she gets dropped off by a Catholic school. And she's like, okay, bye. And they drive off into the distance. So she tries calling her mother and her mother doesn't happen to be home. So then she tries calling a male friend and he doesn't answer. I don't know if he's at home, but he doesn't answer. And so at this point, she's out of change because that was an actual concern for people in the 80s with phone booths. Right. (laughs) Was running out of change. So, right. So now she's like, okay, oh, crap. So she walks away, goes to a nearby gas station, and she gets more change. And she goes back to the same exact phone booth, tries her mom again. Mom isn't available. And she tries a couple of other friends. And, like, no one is picking up. So at this point, she sees that same Honda coming back the opposite direction. And it slows down. And once again, this man, her former coworker from Metalcraft, is offering her a ride. And she's like, okay, why not? Sure. So he asks where she lives and Margie tells him. And so they're driving along and she's kind of like, okay, yep, there's my turn off. And he drives right by. Oh, no. And at first he says, oh, it was an accident. Like, I'm so sorry. I wasn't paying enough attention. But then he keeps driving. But then he keeps driving and she's like, okay, but like you passed it again. And then eventually she kind of stop saying anything because he's not listening and she's starting to have that like oh shit moment duck and roll girl duck and roll and that doesn't happen so according to margie um quote he asked me if i was smart and i said that i try to be then he pulled out this switchblade and he said you'll do what i want you to do yeah end quote and so at this point margie says i'm pregnant and this doesn't seem to phase him um you know like he's like i don't care yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Um, so he drove far away from her home. So he just like kept driving. He has a switchblade pulled on her. And like after some amount of time, he demands that she perform oral sex on him in the car. 
And she does it because she's scared and she doesn't want to die. Yeah. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. He's a rapist. Um, yeah. And so she thinks that, okay, maybe we're done after this is over. But no, he keeps driving. Um, and then he pulls over some distance away, like kind of on this like pull off area away from other cars. And he's like, okay, you're going to get out. And like, you're going to hold my hand and we're going to pretend like we're a couple all the while with a switchblade. And like, she's scared for her life. So once again, she complies. Right. And he pulls her into this area, kind of like in some bushes, it like not easily seen from the road. And he makes her completely undress and assaults her again. Oh, my God. And so after this, he says, "Okay, get dressed. And so Margie is thinking, "Okay, maybe he's going to let me go free. Like he's asking like if he he would just kill me. Like, why is he asking me to get dressed again? Like, it'll be fine. Right. So she starts getting dressed and then she's like pulling on her shoes and he holds out a hand like to steady her. And so she takes it and then he pulls her to his body and chokes her. Oh, my God. Right. So this is like very, very frightening. And Margie passes out. So she passes out and then she comes to sometime later. And at first she can't see. And she realizes it's because her sweater has been like pulled up over her face and over her head. So she tries to like pull the sweater down with her right hand, but she can't feel her right hand. So she uses her left hand and she's like feeling really, really weak. And she's like, obviously feeling awful. And she looks down and like her right wrist has been completely slashed up. Oh, my God. And she's been like pulled further back into the bushes and stuff. So she's not kind of on like the area where she was before. Like she's been pulled back, obviously, to hide her. Right. Um, And she's like, "Okay, listen, if I'm going to live, I need to get out of here because nobody's going to see me from here. And I'm like very badly wounded. So So she tries did he like think she was dead and just like pulled her back there to hide her body and she wasn't dead oh wow yes yeah so she he thought that she was dead and he left her in the woods god she is a very strong person she is well and even more so like when we find out what happens next so she tries to get up so that she can walk out but then she realizes that she can't feel her left leg oh my god so So she's like okay a bunch right like right so she's like okay well i guess i gotta crawl so she's like crawling her way out but like trying to cradle her right wrist because it's very very badly wounded so she's like using her shoulder to crawl and like using that like her shoulder and her left hand so like picture how slow she is going she's bleeding profusely very badly injured in shock And she's like dragging herself out of the woods. Like it's absolutely horrifying. So she pulls and like works and works and works and like gets herself out onto like a cut grass area by the road. And she's like, oh my God, okay, now somebody will hear me. And she apparently waved at like 15 or 20 cars before someone actually stopped. Oh my God. Right. And now I'm not saying that all those people saw her, but like certainly some of them did and none of them stopped. So like, guys, you see someone who's hurt on the side of the road. I mean, I guess maybe it could be a setup, but it probably isn't. You should help them. Yeah. My God, call yeah. call someone on your cell phone for help. This we is, have cell you know, phones modern now. times. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, she gets help finally, which, oh my God, like good. Oh, this poor woman. 
And she, so she had been sexually assaulted and beaten, but she still somehow survived. And like, just to talk about how extensive her wounds were, she had lost over a third of the blood in her body. You need that blood. That's not, that's a lot of blood. Right. And so when she's brought into the hospital, they're like, okay, well, the very first thing we need to do is to stabilize you. And so as they're like rushing her in, a law enforcement officer apparently happened to be like unrelated to her. Um, kind of near the entrance where she got brought in. And she like apparently like tried to grab that officer like no. as they were wheeling her by to be like, you need to hear what happened to me because she's like, if I'm going to die, like people need to know about this man and stop him. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like someone she needs to know what happened to me. She's a strong person. She Jesus. is like Margie's wow. a badass. Like yeah. Margie's a hero. She's great. And she did not deserve this at all. Oh, no. Um, and so. She's like, you know, trying to like blurt everything out to this officer and they get like another officer to come in to like, you know, come with her and take her statement. And she's like, listen, I know exactly what he looks like. He worked at Metalcraft because remember, they were coworkers. So she's like, and he has a blue Honda Civic. Like, here's everything. Like, look at what he did to me. Like, You need to go and catch this guy. Yeah. Um, and that was like the most critical part of her statement was the fact that he was a coworker at Metalcraft. Metalcraft only has so many employees and only so many employees are male and have a blue Honda Civic. And so they were like, OK, we know who we're going to go for first. Like we know yeah. where to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, and she gave a physical description of him, too. So, I mean, she wasn't like, oh, just some random guy like she could describe him very, very well. And so she, you know, would later go on to say in like, you know, statements after she had been stabilized that while they were in the car, they even talked about work and working at Metalcraft. And that later, when she was kind of thinking back on it, made her think that he intended to like kill her all along because she could identify him. Yeah. Otherwise he, you know, otherwise he wouldn't have done that. Right. Like if he... Maybe, but like he definitely, you know what I mean? Like if you think that you're picking up some rando or, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, whatever. Here's just this random person I picked up. Maybe you can assault them, dump and them somewhere and, and they won't know you who again. you are. Yeah. But, they but if it's about your work. coworker, yeah. right, that changes things. Um, And so to put your hearts and minds at ease, surgeons worked for eight hours to heal Margie. And at that point, after eight hours, they were able to take her from critical to serious. And like, even more miraculously, Margie was pregnant and her fetus survived. Hey, that was going to be my next question. Unharmed, which is just unbelievable. And at the time, they were like, you know, your fetus hasn't been injured in any way. But at the same time, they were like, we don't know what's going to happen because, you know, you've had a lot of trauma and you lost and a lot of blood. A lot of blood. Right. So her baby does end up living. So that's okay. But at the time, it was a concern because you didn't know. So police put out an APB like stat because there's a psycho out here brutalizing a woman, like uh-huh. thought that he got away with it and tried to kill her. Um, and an officer who hears this APB, like, you know, he's on his radio and he hears it. He remembers that he had pulled over a blue Honda Civic for a traffic stop earlier. And he's like, holy shit, that's the guy. And he even knew it was Dwayne. He knew Dwayne because Dwayne was kind of infamous with police at this point. Yeah. I mean, you you know, you know about like a person who is a 
you know, high profile criminal and a high profile. Right, well, case and remember, um, he was your area, right? Like, right. And because his case was like kind of statewide known because he was the youngest person who had been like convicted at the time yeah. to a penitentiary like he was. So, I mean, for many reasons, he was known to law enforcement. So they were like, OK, well, that's Dwayne, like probably not surprised right. at all. Yeah. Um. So at 8 p.m. that same night. Dwayne was arrested on attempted homicide charges. Wow. And so the police did a search of his home and they found several knives and among other things, apparently thousands of rounds of 22 ammo. Um, okay. Which he's like a parolee. He's not supposed to have that, but also even just for a normal person, like, I'm not saying like you might have that if you're an enthusiast, you go out and like you said, if you're doing target practice or whatever, yeah. but like you're that compounded milk. with the fact, but like compounded with the fact that like, he's not supposed to have this cause he's a felon. And also like, he also maybe shot the Cowdens. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Things are not looking great for you, Dwayne. No, they're not. So to like give a little bit of information on like, what has he been up to leading up to this attack? Um, he had been unemployed for five months leading up to this attack. He had been laid off because apparently he had gotten a hand injury that required surgery, um, but he hadn't gotten the surgery yet. And his wife had just given birth to a son. And his parole officer, when questioned, said that Dwayne had been acting normal and fine, like didn't see anything out of the ordinary. And at this point, Dwayne was only 31 years old. So he's been busy doing horrible things in his 31 years of life. Are there other missing people? That can be attributed to him. I mean, right. And that's kind of the question is, does he have victims that we don't know about? And obviously, like we've talked about, they had nothing to like officially connect him to the Cowdens, but he seems like a very likely suspect. Right. So, um, you know, and police, when they were working Margie's case, would later think that Dwayne might have been stalking her. Oh, because they found this like company Christmas card that had been sent out from Metalcraft. And it showed a group photo and the two of them were standing right next to each other um, in the photo. And Dwayne had no business being in the area that day where she was picked up. It wasn't like he was on his way to work or like he had an appointment or the grocery store was there. Like he didn't have a reason to be in the area. And he just Mm -hmm. happened to be there. Like maybe he fucked with her car or something because maybe he knew where she lived and. Right. Like we don't we don't know. I mean, and thankfully yeah. Margie lived, but that was like incredibly traumatic. Yeah. Um, and that's horrible. You know, it was absolutely horrible what happened to her. Um, and once again, like Dwayne started off back to his old business, being in jail and being like, Oh, I'm such a good citizen. Um, but then when he was being transferred to another jail, apparently he attempted to break free. Um, he was like, I have to use the restroom and then like tried to overpower this officer to escape. And he maybe would have been able to escape, but there was another inmate being transferred at the same time. And that inmate helped the officer to subdue Dwayne. Wow. Okay. So like the officer would, yeah. So the officer would later say like, if both of them had gained up on me, I probably wouldn't have been able to stop them. But because this other inmate Stop right Dwayne. Yeah. yeah, we were able to stop him. So he did not escape prison. Um, so on November 11th, 1980, 
Uh, Dwayne was sentenced to 20 years for attempted murder and 20 years for kidnapping. All right, then. So the rest of his so, life, probably. Right. And like, this is like less than a year later. So I'm thinking that the jury did not need that long to think about it. Yeah. Um, and I totally agree with this quote. So the judge in the case said, quote, I do believe Mr. Little is dangerous by whatever criteria. I find that he is an unusual risk to the safety of the public. Two victims are enough, Mr. Little, and I'm not going to chance a third victim, end quote. So let's round back to the Cowdens, right? We spent all this time in the first episode talking about the Cowdens, and we've talked about how Little is a potential good suspect. Well, why? Like, what are some of the things that could link him to that case? So police were able to confirm that Little had been in the area over Labor Day weekend in 1974. They learned, in fact, that Little had been to Crescent City, California, and dropped off some metal the day before the Cowdens disappeared. And Little claims that he slept in his car that night, but there's no way for them to prove or disprove this. Hmm. Um, there was okay. also a confirmed sighting of Little in, and I'm going to say this town's name wrong, I think it's Roosh or Rush, it's R-U-C-H. Um, and that's about 30 minutes away from Copper, around 2.30 p.m. on the day that the Cowdens disappeared. So he's pretty close by. Um, and according to a Mail Tribune article from 20, um, 2003, excuse me, uh, quote, an elderly couple had seen Little's pickup truck on the day of the Cowden's disappearance near uh, Steamboat Cemetery, about halfway between the Cowden's campsite and their death scene. The truck's cab was filled with people and a basset hound was running behind the vehicle, they said. The Cowden's huh. hound Ruby was found wandering the day after the family disappeared, unquote. Wow. So if they're not mistaken, I mean, that seems pretty suspicious. Um, and then moreover, the description of the pickup truck matched ones that his parents owned in 1974. And oh. police now believe that the family from Los Angeles that we had talked about had seen Little and his parents in the pickup truck that evening. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. That is. Um, it's important to note that Little has never been cooperative and he's never spoken about the crimes he was convicted of or implicated in. And he and his parents very much so deny that they were at the campgrounds that day or that they know anything about the disappearance of the Cowdens. However, um, a minor, like a dwarven minor, um, <laughs> who, not a child, but right. like a prospector. Like, like a... <laughs> A person whose career is to mine precious minerals and or metals. Right. Yes. Um, who owned a cabin nearby claimed that Little and his parents stopped by on Monday. So this was Ooh. after Labor Day um, and signed a guest book that he kept for visitors. So he is saying that they're definitely in the area and that he like has proof that they were in the area. Right. Um, and interestingly enough, if Dwayne had taken a lie detector test, the charges against him for his firearm possession would be dropped um, regarding the family's murder. So they said, we want you to take a lie detector test about the family's murder and we'll drop this charge for the firearms. And he didn't. Um, and he didn't. He, he said chose to no. go back to jail, go back to prison. Correct. Um, um, which is so like unfortunate. But at the same time, we've talked about it before. Lie detector tests don't really mean shit. So that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, I would say to but anybody he, if he didn't know that they didn't mean shit, though, right? Like, he, no, no, no. Yeah, right. He, he, he said no to the lie detector test, which would have been like hugely beneficial for him 
his charges about the firearm would have been dropped. He would have gotten back out in parole and been a free person. Right. He had incentive. It wasn't like, right. hey, just do this just because they're like right. giving him an incentive and he is saying no. Um, and again, it's like a little bit alleged, but he is definitely like a rapist and attempted murderer and is sure. convicted of rape and murder anyways. So. Right. Well, and it's like. <sighs> I read in it like I read about this in a couple of different sources and they conflicted a little bit. So it was unclear to me if this was after his attack on Margie or if it was before when he had been caught with a gun um, in 75. So it's a little bit unclear. But either way, at some point, he was asked to take a lie detector test about the Cowdens and he said no. Gotcha. Um, he chose not and, to do that when it would have been a beneficial thing for him to do. Right. And not long after he was locked up permanently for his attack on Margie, um, a cellmate of his, this guy named Floyd, um, claimed that Dwayne had confessed to the murders. But when police made moves to bring together a grand jury indictment, it became clear that Floyd was lying and his story didn't match with the facts of the case at all. Uh Um, Floyd also claimed that Dwayne was planning a prison escape which Floyd was like, oh, I'm just pretending to be in on. And he led authorities to a cache of weapons. So he was right about that. No. So he's like a trustworthy informant for some things. Like for some things. Right. But it's unclear. I mean, and it could very well be that, you know, he overheard something where like sarcastically Dwayne was like, oh, yeah, I killed the Cowdens. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or maybe he was serious, but he like specifically lied about facts of the case so that it couldn't be tied back to him like we don't know we just have no information about it yeah but there's really just not enough evidence right um you know when i was reading about the case too like margie we don't have a lot of information on her life afterward other than you know she had a son um her baby you know lived she had permanent injuries i mean she was permanently handicapped from her attack um but she went on to live her life and like I said was a goddamn hero like saved herself rescued herself essentially absolutely Um, a badass like there's no yeah and it was because of her case that he was locked up for good which he should have already been I mean he's clearly a dangerous person and I'm you know obviously very upset that she was attacked by him but because she was able to survive that and I mean think Part of that was just her goddamn iron will. Yeah. Uh, like he was put away, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, other than that, that's all we have. He's never spoken on the case. We don't have any more information. So did he kill the Cowdens? We don't have any solid proof that he did. Did somebody else do it? We don't, don't either know. have solid proof on that. However, it's a very small area. Like the town of Copper had like 10 residents. All right. So kind of it, it seems... Would. The kind of person that would kill a family of four, like he is happened to be in the area. Like right. this, he is a convicted you know, brutal rapist man. and murderer. Yeah. So like, yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That so that's, family. that's all we know. And yeah, I mean, I'm happy. I don't want to say happy. Like it's a relief that the family was found so that the rest of the family, you know, the extended family of the Cowdens could have some kind of peace and knowing. There's, there's closure, um, but, but they, it's still like an open case. Right. And they don't have the the peace of knowing for sure that, you know, their loved one's killer is behind bars, but. Hopefully he is. Hopefully he is. And, you know, all we know is that Dwayne's not going to be out here able to, you know, brutalize women, you know, out on the streets ever again. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That was a sad one. 
It was a sad one. A lot of them are sad ones, though. We need to do more just like general mysteries. Goofy adventures. Where we don't have. Yeah. Bigfoot alien stuff. Less terrestrial, incredibly sad stuff. Yeah. So let us know what you think. Let us know what you thought of the story. If you um, have also read Anne Roll's book and want to give us your insights on that, feel free to do so. Uh, once again, a lot of the background information that I got was from her book. Um, so that's Anne Roll's book, but I trusted you in other two cases. Take it with a grain of salt. Like I said, I thought, I mean, I thought it was interesting in the very least. Yeah. Um, I mean, once again, though, we spent a lot of time focusing on Dwayne's story and not a whole lot on his like victims and their background. Um, but it's hard to know because, you know, like, for instance, the Cowdens died in the 70s. And so it's just maybe at the time nobody wrote about that. Nobody was very interested. And then, you know, later coming back to the case, a lot of these people have probably passed away. Um, well, and there's there's the element of, you know, especially the, the this young family, they they obviously were horribly murdered, uh, but they and their extended family still deserve some measure of privacy. And, you know, there's not oh, yeah, for so, sure. much, so much that are that is published about this, especially if they were just like a normal, happy family. You know, they can when it comes down to a lot of true crime stuff, you know, and we, we fall into this pitfall a lot, too. But you can only talk so much and say about, you know, well, it was a perfectly happy, normal family. They went to the park on weekends and liked to camp. That's a very good thing. And it's what, you know, kind of implies narrative weight to their story um and, and gives narrative weight to to the the fact that they're no longer here um what makes it kind of an interesting story to tell but Dwayne is just kind of like he obviously had this horrible background and this horrible upbringing with, with right, which is not to excuse him crazy no not at all but but like his family is incredibly strange and obviously there was a lot of trauma in unstable. his life yeah and unstable and and that kind of led him to this to this place of, of doing these, these horrible things. And that's just kind of the, the interesting side of the story in this case is the, the, the murderer as opposed to the, the, the victims who, you know, again, deserve their privacy. We kind of found that we found that in previous cases too, where the, the victims are just, you know, their family doesn't want to talk. They don't talk to the press. They don't, they don't talk to people because they, they value their privacy. So the story that you are left to tell is, the one of the person who ends up behind bars. It's just kind of the way it goes. Yeah. A lot to be said for nature versus nurture, which I don't want to, yeah. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I'm Same. only an armchair enthusiast. I, w- I wouldn't say enthusiast, but you know, like when you read true Enthus- crime, you consume true crime. It's something that you like talk about or like, you know, you hear yeah. people talking about. So um, yeah, let us know your thoughts, I guess. But if there are other cases, you know, hearing about this one that you're reminded of that you want us to cover, take a look in, you know, take a look into, let us know. Um, But yeah, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Uh, Mysterypodcast.com. That's our website. Go there. Check it out. Engage with us. Also on Twitter. Twitter is probably the easiest way to engage with us. At Miss Miss Murpod. It's on the website. You'll find it.